grab a Bible, let's go to the book of Matthew, chapter 11. We're in a series of teachings that we're calling The Way. If you remember, this is the title the earliest Christians had for themselves. They weren't known as Christians uh, immediately after the resurrection of Jesus and the formation of the church. They were known as people who belonged to The Way. Now, The Way is in reference uh, not only to the way of salvation that Jesus himself provides, but it was also used to describe a manner of life that was held in contrast to the way that people lived around them. They were known for a distinctive way of living that directly flowed from the implications of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And so it wasn't just a way of believing they were known for, it was a way of living. And we want to look at this way of living. Now, we're going to come across John the Baptist. His last name was not the Baptist. I mean, as we all know, John uh, the Baptist was uh, called that because he was baptizing he was preaching a baptism of repentance. Now, it's a, a little interesting in Judaism that normally uh, you would undergo ceremonial washings, but the baptism that John was inviting to was for people already in God's chosen community to prepare themselves for the work of the one who was coming after John. John kept talking about the one who's coming, whose uh, sandals he said, I'm not fit to untie. He talked about the one that would come that wouldn't just baptize in water, but baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. So there was this great kind of preparatory build up to the ministry of Jesus. John and Jesus were cousins, uh, and, and John was about six months older. Now, John, interestingly, is the kind of the first person, at least in uh, the Gospel of John's account, to announce the significance of Jesus when he says, Behold, here Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so in that reality, John lives until he gets into prison. Notice Matthew 11, verse 1. Excuse me, verse 2. This question John has is kind of interesting in light of all that background. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of Jesus the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Now, isn't that an interesting question? I mean, John was kind of the first guy to pick up on the whole significance of Jesus thing, and now he's wondering, is, it, is he doubting that Jesus is the Messiah? What's going on? It just kind of doesn't make a whole lot of sense, at least as it reads in English. And wouldn't you know it, Jesus was Jewish, and John was Jewish, and they are engaging. There's something here they're engaging in that I think we miss without a little bit of background. One of the things you would do, the, the Jews of the day had vast portions of the Old Testament memorized. And one of the ways they would have a, you'd have a conversation or a rabbinic debate is you would employ something called remez, R-E-M-E-Z. Remez is where you quote, a, a tiny fragment of a portion of the Bible, but you have the rest of the Bible in, in view. If, if I said, for instance, hey guys, the Lord is my shepherd, you would have Psalm 23 in view. When Jesus on the cross says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's just not a sentence out of nowhere. That's the beginning of Psalm 22. And if you're Jewish, you realize Jesus declares just the one line, but he has the rest of the thing in mind too. Or if I were to say, for God so loved the world, right? You'd fill in that he gave his one and only son and whosoever. So one of the things we think is going on here is that John isn't asking Jesus if he's Messiah. John is asking about something else. John is using a remez. 
he uses an interesting phrase. Are you the one who is to come? Now, there are some who think that is a phrase that is used in Zechariah to reference the coming king. Your, come, your king will come to you riding a colt. And what's interesting in that passage in Zechariah is a part there about how the king will release prisoners. So where is John when he asks this? In prison. So not everyone thinks, but there are some that think that what John's doing is asking if the work of Jesus will include his release from prison. And I think that interpretation is confirmed by Jesus' response. Verse 4. Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. And then Jesus takes two portions of Isaiah and weaves them together. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the who? To the poor. And then Jesus adds this part, Blessed is anyone who does not stumble or fall on account of me. Now, like we could fire this little guy up. I want to show you something that's going on here. So this is Jesus' response. Okay, we'll come back to it. This is, the, this is from Isaiah 35. The eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Okay, so when you go back to Matthew, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear. I mean, there's, there, you would have known there are bits and pieces of this from Isaiah. Jesus quotes another part of Isaiah, Isaiah 61. The sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the... So there's your key line. But notice what comes next in Isaiah. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners. Does Jesus include that part in his response? Nope. Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and good news is proclaimed to the poor. Period. He cuts off the part about releasing the captives. And he says instead, blessed is the one who does not stumble on account of me. In other words, what's he saying? John, I am the one who is to come. And you are not going to be released from prison. And sure enough, John is beheaded not too long after this episode takes place. Is it possible, brothers and sisters, to do everything God wants you to do and not have your life end well? Is it possible to be obedient and be disappointed in the way things turn out? Go to Deuteronomy chapter 32. Moses is an interesting resume. 40 years in Pharaoh's court, 40 years tending sheep, and then 40 years leading the Israelites around the wilderness. And you remember the story, of course, Jesus, excuse me, Jesus, Moses takes the first generation of Israelites to the promised land. 
God said, go take the land. They said, nope, there are giants in the land. God said, well, then if, if you do not have faith enough to take it, then we'll wait for another generation who does. So for 40 years, they go wandering around the desert. This is what God says to Moses towards the end of his life. Verse 48, Deuteronomy 32. On that same day, the Lord told Moses, go up to the Abarim range to Mount Nebo in Moab, across from Jericho, and view what? Canaan. Canaan was the promised land. So you can go up on a mountain and look at it. Look at the land I'm giving the Israelites as their own possession. There on the mountain that you have climbed, you will die and be gathered to your people. Verse 51. This is because both you and Aaron broke faith with me in the presence of the Israelites. And he refers to a specific example. Verse 52. Therefore, you will see the land only from a distance. So for 40 years, you have been fighting to get to this land. And Moses, you will die within sight of it, but not be allowed in. Or think of the story of David. David's desire, God, I want to build you a house, a temple. God says, no, no, your hands are too full of blood. But you can get the building materials and arrange for the designs, but your son will actually build it. Or think of Jeremiah. Flip over to Jeremiah. If you don't know where that is, it's after Isaiah. I always think it's funny. Go to Jeremiah chapter 1. I know we're flipping. See, but see, you've got the tabs. See, you don't, that's not as godly. I mean, I just, I'm, I'm glad you have it. I'm just teasing. Jeremiah chapter 1. <laughs> now, this is Jeremiah writing, and so think about if, if this was the call you had to whatever ministry God had given you. Think about how significant this would be. Verse 4. Jeremiah 1.4. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. How epic does that sound? Pretty, pretty cool, right? And then, and then, you know, he says, Jeremiah says, well, yeah, but I'm, I'm too young. God says, uh, verse 9, the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms. That sounds pretty epic. I'm over nations and kingdoms. To uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. Yeah! I mean, that's better than being a fisherman any day of the week, right? I'm speaking the very words of God from the womb I was set apart. So how well did this work out for Jeremiah? Flip over to chapter 20. I mean, that's a pretty epic call. Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 7. <laughs> Jeremiah writes, You deceived me, Lord, and I was deceived. You overpowered me and prevailed. I am ridiculed all day long, and everyone mocks me. Whenever I speak, I cry out proclaiming violence and destruction. So the word of the Lord has brought me insult and reproach all day long. 
But if I say, I will not mention his word or speak anymore in his name, his word is like, a, in my heart is like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones, and I'm weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. So do you hear what he's saying? God, this whole big epic promise, you seduced me. That's what the word means. You led me on. You deceived me. I thought I, thought I was supposed to tear down kingdoms, and yet I'm just mocked every time I open my mouth. But if I try to not say anything, your word burns in me like fire. Flip over to verse 14. He says, Cursed be the day I was born. I mean, so this is the guy set apart in the womb, and he says, Cursed be that day. May, may the day my mother bore me not be blessed. Is it, is it possible to do what God asks you to do and be disappointed? I think so. I think we have plenty of examples where following God didn't lead exactly to the place we thought it would. Go to Luke chapter 1. Let's look at the life of Mary. See, you and I, in the Bible, the opposite of faith is not doubt. I'm thankful for that. The opposite of faith is something called sight. Live by faith, Paul says, and not by sight. Sight is trusting in what you can see. Faith, according to Hebrews 11, is trusting in what you cannot see. So we are big fans of sight. Huge fans of sight. And what we like to do with Jesus is we like to make him a bit more controllable. We like him to make, make him a bit more manageable. We like him to enter in and operate according to generally accepted accounting principles. A blessing. Right? I, I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I like my God to enter into an ironclad contract about how my life's going to go. Right? So when I give money, what's his job? To give money back to me. Am I the only one that thinks that? It's like a divine annuity program, you know? Uh, my job is to pray for my kids every day. Your job, God, is to make sure they turn out okay. God, my job, right, is to stay pure before marriage, and then you guarantee me that after marriage, it'll be nothing but 24-7 of romance. Right, this man's laughing too hard. He knows. Right? And so, we, we, and I would never say I had these negotiations with God until they get violated. And then I realize I had them. Right? Because what's the thing I want to, whenever something bad happens, what's the thing I want to say? Why me? Look, and I, I'm not this bold with God, but I want to say, look at all that I do for you. Like, why do you let other, why do you bless other people when I'm slaving away as a pastor, which, you know, it's horrible. <laughs> right? I mean, I kind of, I, I kind of, I, I want to know how it works ahead of time. Right? I mean, I'm the kind of person, I, I, I'm a risk management guy. Right? I, I have insurance for my insurance. <laughs> right? We're, we're the kind of people that, that love to manage risk ahead of time. The problem is, faith is nothing but risk. Because the only thing that you're promised is the character of God and how the story ends. Otherwise, 
There's no promise that He's going to make you wealthy. There's no promise He's going to make you healthy. There's no promise He is going to lay this rose-colored path before you. But isn't that what we try to do in the American church? We try to make Jesus the guarantor of all your felt needs. The problem is, the Bible just doesn't set up the life of faith like that. Not once. And so you get story after story of people who are faithful and God's faithfulness to them doesn't end up being the absence of suffering, but rather His presence in it. Luke chapter 1. So we meet Mary. Mary's probably 12, 13 years old. Just a kid. And then an angel shows up and says, greetings, you who are favored. And she says, hmm, that's interesting. Verse 29, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son. You are to call him Jesus. He will be great and be called Son of the Most High. Wow. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over Israel, Jacob's descendants, forever. His kingdom will never end. Now, how epic is that? I mean, moms, if you had an angel show up and say, this is what's going to happen to your kid, you'd be pretty stoked, right? I mean, for generations, Jewish women, when they gave birth, would pray that this would be Messiah. And now Mary's hearing, you're the one to give birth to God's Christ. And, and, and notice, I mean, it, it comes with incredible blessing and privilege, and yet there's this shadow to it. Flip over to chapter 2, verse 34. Verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 34. Mary and Joseph present Jesus at the temple. There's a man there named Simeon. Simeon was promised that he would not die until he saw the Lord's Messiah. So Simeon comes up and says to them, verse 34, Simeon blessed Mary and Joseph and then said to Mary, his mother, This child, Jesus, is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel. And to be a sign that is spoken against. He'll be a dividing line. So that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And then notice this line. Mary, and a sword will pierce your soul too. Well, I I thought giving birth to Messiah was like just nothing but awesome. And a sword will pierce your soul too? I mean, what does that mean? Flip over to Luke chapter 4. I've I've preached some bad sermons. And you're probably thinking, yeah, we're in the middle of one right now. (laughs) So yes. Well, after Jesus' first sermon, it, it doesn't go well. And no one's ever tried to kill me, so I always comfort myself that way. Luke chapter 4, verse 28. Jesus quotes Isaiah 61 and then applies it in a way that did not make uh, the synagogue happy. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove Jesus out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. This is his hometown. And then I love this. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. No problem. Just another day in the life of Jesus of Nazareth. 
okay. So they were so offended at him, they tried to throw him off a cliff. He goes on his way. Who stays in his hometown? Mary does. So who had to go to the well the next day with some of the people who'd just been clamoring for the blood of Jesus? Mary did. Who had to preside over a family that we find out later in the Gospels? The brothers of Jesus would mock him because they did not believe anything that was said about him. And then who sits at the foot of the cross watching her son be ridiculed and tortured to death? I mean, I just wonder in those moments, did Mary remember Simeon's words? And a sword will pierce your soul too? I mean, think about the offer. Hey, John the Baptist, you'll be the forerunner, but you'll be put to death in prison. Hey, Jeremiah, you will be a prophet to the nations, but no one will listen to you. Moses, you will lead the nation to the foot of the promised land, but you won't go in. Mary, you will give birth to Messiah, and a sword will pierce your soul too. Does that sound like a good infomercial for Jesus? See, you and I are people who want to know the end of the journey before we start it. Jesus, I'll follow you, but please don't send me to China. Jesus, I'll follow you, but please don't ask me to be poor. Jesus, I'll follow you, but please don't ask me to be celibate. And I think at those moments, Jesus goes, well, then you're not really interested in following me, are you? Because as it turns out, Jesus is far more interested in the life of faith than he is the life of safety or comfort or convenience. Go to Mark 14. So Jesus celebrates the Passover with his disciples. And then he goes and he prays. Verse 32. Mark 14. They went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John along with him. And he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. You ever felt that way? Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if it was possible, that the hour of his suffering might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup of suffering from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. So when we talk about the way of Jesus, before it is anything else, It is the way of surrender. It is the way of faith. It is the way that demands that you and I abandon our negotiations and our reasonable attempts to create contracts with our Jesus and instead abandons oneself to the character and goodness of our God, regardless of what happens next. 
but I don't like that. I like figuring out ahead of time. I like knowing how the story is going to end. And yet you look at all of these examples, and evidently it is possible to follow Jesus and not have your life end up in a pretty red bow. I mean, I, the, earlier this summer, we were with a 45-year-old woman dying of cancer. Beautiful, vibrant. She loved Jesus, loves to worship. What do you say to her son and husband? Is there a why that you can just throw out there and have it work and make it all better? See, the Bible is littered with the examples of people who followed. It didn't always end great. It wasn't always just fine. Or our definition of just fine needs to change. Because we read just fine to mean just fine according to my standards of blessedness, security, and convenience. And our Jesus is working towards something else entirely. We talk a lot about our little Seth, right? Forgive me for always talking about him, but I can't help it. He slobbers and he kisses and it's just the greatest thing. He has Down syndrome, for those of you that don't know. My wife and I uh, had dreams of a very big family. We both come from divorced homes. We wanted a lot of kids. When our oldest son, Nate, was in utero, there were some indications he could have had Down syndrome. And when we heard this, we were just terrified. My wife had had it in her family And we would have done anything not to have this happen. As it turned out, he came out as normal. Normal according to the world. Got pregnant again, hoping, praying. Hannah, just fine. And then we stopped. And there was just a, my wife was approaching advanced maternal age. And the, the, no, seriously, the odds of Down syndrome dramatically increase when you hit a certain age. So we just thought we'd stop. But there was a restlessness in us. We felt like our family wasn't done. For those of you that have kids, I don't know if you'd ever felt that, but you just looked around and you said, you know, there's room for more. And I was really, I was really fearful of having a third because I was worried specifically he would have Down syndrome. And I remember I was on, driving on Arlington Road in Costa Mesa. I remember the exact moment when God said, not in an audible voice, but he said, live by faith and not by fear. Awesome. So you got our back on this one. So, kid number three. In fact, when my wife was early in her pregnancy, we had an elder, dear, dear man, just... Say, hey, I know you're worried about this, but I think God wants to let you know he's going to be just fine. Now, how do I read just fine? So imagine our consternation when we find out the little dude has Down syndrome. Our greatest worry was now a fact. You seduced me. You deceived me. In my worst moments, probably felt a little bit like that. See, I've come to believe that the promises of hope and blessedness, those are all true. 
But I always define them as the absence of suffering, not in the middle of suffering. And the scripture so clearly evidences that the hope and blessedness of Jesus, the peace that surpasses understanding, comes right in the middle of suffering, not in its absence. And that's bad news for the American church, because we're looking for a savior that saves us from sorrow. To the rest of the world, this is great news, because they know sorrow right from the gate. Have you ever been to the place where you just had to look at God and go, I'd give anything for this to go away, but not my will, yours. When I was 32, I blew out my knee, and because uh, I'm an incredible athlete, <laughs> and had to have an ACL, MCL, PCL repair. Uh, went into the, for surgery, came out that night as a different person. I, um, you know, not that you're particularly interested, but I just started having anxiety attacks, panic attacks. I'd never had them before, didn't know what they were, thought something wrong, was wrong with my heart. My wife could smell the anesthesia on me for days afterwards. If you've ever had, if you've ever been really nervous, I was, I lived like that for years, 24-7. Became very, very depressed. Now, you gotta know, I'm, I'm a type A, I'm a go-getter, man. I, I don't, I'm positive, I'm happy, I'm in a good mood. And, and you know, when you get hurt, like when I would get football or rugby injuries, I mean, people would, you know, sign your cast. It was kind of cool. But when you say, hey, I'm struggling with anxiety and depression, nobody signs your head. You know, it's like, <laughs> And, and, and I had well-meaning Christians, like, well, you just got to pray more, and you just got to, and I would do that, and they wouldn't work, and then I'd feel all the more shame. I, I tried some medication, I gained 50 pounds, like, I need 50 pounds, <laughs> right? And, and I lived, it, while, while this was going on, the church I was serving at was exploding, people were coming to Jesus, and it was just going berserk, and I kept going, God, why are you doing this? When I stepped up on the stage, there was peace, but every other moment of every other day, I was just in agony. And I said, take it away. And he said, no. I want you to be trustworthy with my glory. Can't we do this another way? <laughs> now, I know that's not suffering compared to some of what you've been through, but you know, for us, that was a lot. And what did we learn in those moments. See, I've seen Jesus meet us in our little boy, and I've seen Jesus meet us in the pit of my despair, and I've seen Jesus meet us in the realm of disappointment in such powerful ways that I don't know that I could have ever seen otherwise. See, we live, you and I, we live in an interesting tension. Go, if you would, to 1 Thessalonians if you don't know where that is, it's right before 2 Thessalonians. <laughs> so good. So good. Just the sense of humor is awesome. <laughs> First Thessalonians chapter 4. It's talking about the second coming of Jesus. And he says, verse 13. Paul writes, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. And then notice this phrase. So that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. 
So he's writing to people who are wondering what happens when people die. And he says, I'm writing this so that you are not uninformed. And I want you to grieve, but grieve differently from those who have no hope. See, one of the things churches aren't great at, we're not great at grieving. We feel like we've got to put a red bow on everything. We feel like we've got to have a cliche and a casserole ready at all times in case somebody is really disappointed. And, and let me tell you, casseroles are always welcome. And cliches, that's just fine. But that's not biblical lamenting. I mean, there are entire verses and chapters of the Bible giving us words to use. When you're at the end of everything and you go, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why don't you listen? How come you're so far away? But see, we never avail ourselves of those things, even though the vast majority of us live with profound disappointment in God. It wasn't supposed to happen this way. My marriage isn't supposed to be like this. This person isn't supposed to die so young. And when we don't make room to grieve, we set up so many to walk away. So on the one hand, we grieve. We grieve. There is much to grieve. But then on the other hand, we grieve with hope. Not as those who have no hope, because we believe Jesus of Nazareth has risen from the dead. Our greatest enemy has been defeated. And no matter who you are, what you've done, or where you are this morning, we can say with 100% certainty it won't always be this way. It just won't. And yet, we grieve. See, Jesus comes and he inaugurates his kingdom. The Spirit has been poured out on any who receive Jesus. So are we surprised when God heals people? No. Do we ask and seek and knock for Him to move and restore and heal and put back together? Absolutely. Our surrender isn't some passive fatalism. And yet, because we still wait for Jesus to come a second time, to put everything back to the way He wants it, to wipe every tear from all of our eyes, we're not surprised when prayers don't get answered and when people die. We're not surprised when He heals. We're not surprised when He doesn't. We live in this now and not yet of God's reign. So we pray for healing. We cry out for deliverance and freedom. And we grieve as we go through human life. And yet we are to grieve so differently from everybody else. Because we believe there's a bigger story that sometimes only makes sense looking backward through the eyes of faith, not through the eyes of sight. And so this morning, what we've been doing is we've just been praying for each other. Because we know sitting in this room are a whole host of people who are laboring under the burden of disappointment. And we recognize that the best expressions of church aren't one person on a stage talking to an audience. The best expressions of church are of, of a body, a family that ministers to each other. And so what we've been doing all morning is we've just been having people stand up. They would like to be prayed for, and we just gather around and pray for them. And it's been the most powerful thing. Not because God's going to solve everything and we're just going to walk out of here and it'll be great. I pray that happens. But because there's so much power in being reminded we have a sympathetic high priest, there's so much power and being reminded you're surrounded by a community who can give voice to faith when you just don't feel like you have any. 
And so we just feel like there are those of you here who labor under the burden of disappointment and despair, and we would just be honored to pray for you this morning. So in a moment, I'm going to ask if you just stand right where you are. I know it takes an incredible amount of courage, but we're not going to ask your story. We're not going to embarrass you. But after that, we're just going to gather around you and pray. Pray that you walk out of here with more hope and light, more grace and courage than when you came in. So if that's you, would you just stand right where you are? If you'd like us to pray for you. Thanks for being honest. No one's going to look at you with eyes of judgment. Nobody. 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 Thanks for being honest, you guys. And in a, in a few moments, we're just going to have some folks gather around you and pray. This is what worship's going to look like today. As we pray. Now, for those of you who are seated, if you have a pulse and you love Jesus, you are commissioned as a part of the EV Free Fullerton prayer team this morning. And in a moment, not yet, I would like to ask you to find one of these brothers and sisters of yours that's standing. A few in the back, quite a few in the back. And I would love to have four or five people standing around each of these people, just putting a hand on their shoulder. You don't have to know anything. Jesus knows already what's going on. Would you gather around them and would you just pray? Don't ask that God would work. He's already working, right? You wouldn't stand in front of a room full of strangers if he wasn't. But would you ask instead that God would increase faith and breathe courage and life? Ask him to change circumstances, absolutely. But even deeper than that, would you pray over them just the courage to believe that God is at work even if circumstances don't change? Okay? So, would you find somebody and would you go gather around them? Just gather around them. If you need to get out of your chair, that is allowed in the middle of church. Okay, there's some, there's some folks over here just right straight in the middle of those rows. Could we go over, straight over here? Yeah, band, why don't you, yeah, band, right over here, right straight in the middle of this row. You have to climb over. Is there anyone who wants to be prayed for that doesn't have people around them? Would you raise your hand? Just so I can make sure we get people around. Anyone who wants to be prayed for? Okay, in the back. Could I have... Could I have a a crew? Keep your hand up, young lady. We want to pray for you this morning. Just right back there. Thank you. Anybody else? We just want to make sure we're praying for everybody. Do you guys? Would you guys like to be prayed for over here? Or were you going to pray? You're going. Okay, got it. All right, can I pray for you? And then can you pray for them? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, mighty God, we come to you. And we pray by the powerful name of Jesus that you would bring healing, that you would bring change in circumstances, that you would bring shalom and deliverance and freedom. That you would draw close right now to the brokenhearted. And that you would increase faith and breathe grace and courage into them. And God, would you give us 
would you give us the supernatural confidence to believe that even in the midst of circumstances that don't make sense, you are still at work. And so, mighty God, would you give hope where there is hopelessness right now? Holy Spirit, would you come and bring light where there is darkness? And would you bring truth where there are lies? And Holy Spirit, would you empower the prayers of your people right now? So brothers and sisters, would you begin to pray over the people you've gathered around? And you can pray out all at once, you can take turns, whatever you're most comfortable with. You can pray quietly or out loud. But would you just begin to pray? We're just going to take a few moments. Would you begin to pray God's blessing? And if you're being prayed for, would you just receive? Would you just receive? So go ahead, begin now, if you would.